0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, we are joined by George McCallman, who has recently released a book, Illustrated Black History Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. George McCallman is an artist, graphic designer, and creative director. His studio, McCallman Co., creates long-lasting brands for clients across arts, lifestyle, food, and mobile media. He's a senior lecturer in graphic design at California College of the Arts and is the author and illustrator of the San Francisco Chronicle's monthly observed column. He lives in San Francisco. Hi, George. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. First, let me just say that the book is beautiful. The illustrations are like breathtaking.
1: Thank you, Thank you so much. I um, really appreciate it.
0: And I say that, and so that you understand like what the first line of questioning is going to be, I almost didn't make it out of the introduction. Uh, there's so much in there
1: that yes. I want to unpack with you.
0: <laughs> like, it wasn't even that long of an introduction, but yes. like, there's a lot. There's
1: a lot in there. um
0: in there. Yeah, which I super appreciated. I want to start, though, just like basic bio stuff about you. Mm -hmm. Um, You're an immigrant. From where? When did you get to America? Yes. Um, And then I want to move into talking about your granny.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Fantastic. Yeah. I can talk about her all day. The whole interview can be just me talking about my granny. My granny. (laughs) Yeah. My granny. Um, So I was born in the island nation of Grenada, which is uh, located in the It's pretty close to the equator, um, right off the coast of South America, Venezuela, located in between Trinidad and Barbados, and my mother and I moved to New York. I grew up in Brooklyn when I was eight, and my formative education is all in New York, and I worked in publishing for a few years before moving out to San Francisco in 1999. So I've been in San Francisco for a while, and it's my home, and I love it here. And so that's that's me.
0: And you mentioned in the introduction, and and, and um, I think the acknowledgments, um, you talk about your grandmother, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which I you know say granny. I think yeah. granny love is a special dynamic across the diaspora. It is, special. Um, and I'd love you to, sp- you know what I mean? Yes. Like it just, it regardless is of the special, country, like yes black folks and our grannies. And so whenever someone um, does that in their book, when they uplift their granny, I want to spend some time talking about them. So talk to us about your grandmother and her impact on you.
1: So my grandmother is a seminal figure in my life. And it's it's the timing of you asking me about her. I, I did a piece for the New York Times that came out two, three weekends ago that is about my grandmother and how she influenced me as a storyteller. And the the visual story, it's for the back page of their books section, I illustrated and wrote about my grandmother being uh, a rabid reader, and that her love of books uh, growing up really seeded in me the importance of words in human evolution and communication and language. And she is 99 years old right now, and... Um, is still as vibrant as she <laughs> has ever been. And she reads most of her day. And I'm, I've been documenting her love of reading and words. Um, and this is a person who's one of the smartest people I know who did not go to, does not have a formal education. And, and she, she taught me basically that education does not produce um, intellect, that it's, it's mm-hmm. a human curiosity does. And so she has remained um, She is my favorite person in the universe and and she is mm. she's a really, really important person to my creativity and my um, my own curiosity as a human being. Mm. And she's awesome. She's funny and she's <laughs> salty and sassy and well-rounded. She's, she's, she's Caribbean, amazing. yeah. I she's mean. Caribbean. <laughs> so she has a lot to say. I, I just, for any, any readers, I'm not talking about someone who's like quiet and docile and in the corner. No, she is in everything. Everything.
0: I love that. I love that. She's amazing. So when you first come to America, how did you first experience American Blackness? And how did that differ from how you had experienced Blackness in Grenada?
1: Oh, that's that's a fantastic question. Um, It was jarring to me when I got here. And even as a boy, I was studying and looking at the differences in the culture that I came from and the culture that I was now a part of. And even though I didn't have the words for it, I I saw immediately that there was... a. I came from a black place where I was the majority. And I moved to a place where I was suddenly referred to as a minority. And that took yeah. me years to make sense of because I still don't think of myself as a minority. And so I I bristle at that, at that, yeah. when someone... Someone refers to the Black community as a minority. It's, it's another way of dismissing us. It's a, a way of kind of quantifying our numbers and making us feel smaller than we are. And so I always was grappling with and rejecting a lot of the language and the ways that black, the Black community in the United States were being referred to because it just didn't jive with my own experience uh, we moved to a Caribbean neighborhood, East Flatbush in Brooklyn, where most of the people around me owned their homes. And so it, it just never, like how people, how the news and how culture referred to and projected onto the Black community. I was just like, no, this doesn't align with what I know. The most, <laughs> the most successful people I know are Black. And so that, that kind of continued to be that schism. Of, of how we, who we are to each other and how the larger community views us, there was always a dissonance for me. And I've carried that to this day. You know, I reject a lot of the language of how American culture refers to me and refers to the Black community that I love. I'm just like, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm nobody's minority.
0: I'm trying to think of where I want to go 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 next because i w- I want to sit with that thread for a minute because i can I can only imagine that it, it brought a bit of trauma and part of why i'm I'm deducing that is is I remember the the first time I got off the ferry in tobago
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i was you know I was in my thirties um and standing there with my husband at the time who's from Trinidad and watching black people. Drive the cabs and be the cops and run the banks and yes. own the shop, right? Like yes. I, just, I could, yes, literally couldn't yes. move. Yeah. And so all the things I'd been saying as a freedom fighter, right, about black self determination, mm-hmm. I realized that moment I had no idea actually what that looked like. Right. And I spent every day, every day he would wake up late and he'd wake up and I'd be watching Parliament and he was like, "Why are you? Why are you doing this?" I'm like, "Cause black folks are running
1: stuff." Yes. Right. Yes. Yes,
0: and and so I, I I can't, and I to this day, right? Even though I'm no longer married to that Trini, I I run back mm. to the Caribbean so that I can feel not othered.
1: Yes, Cat, that is that is it, that is it. You said it in a nutshell, and I I know I am fortunate because that is my worldview. I only know black people running mm. stuff. Um, that is my entire worldview, and no part of being in this country has changed or diminished that and so that is that's what i carry with me you know i know if i were born in the united states i'd be struggling with that idea the same way so many other black um black people do but i am fortunate that i i had a starting point of seeing the completeness of that
0: yeah I've thought a lot about like as an organizer that maybe like one of the missions of all of our organizations should be to get as many black folks as we can yes. to black countries yes right to to see it to taste it to touch it because I think that forever changes you and would likely it change changes. the way we engage with yes. white supremacy here huh
1: yes it it does it changes the conversation it's not the same thing because you have the perspective and and, and you see what is there um You know, there's so many places in the world where that is common. You know, when I go home to Grenada, I'm not the black man. I am George first. And here, when I come back here, I'm black first. And it's a a vibrational difference, but it, it, it affects how I view everything.
0: Including history.
1: <laughs> including history, exactly.
0: And Black history, which is the topic of your book, I want to start um, talking along, I guess, along the same thread then, your observations around how Black history is taught, experienced, and absorbed in America.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, everything that we have just been talking about is the reason the book is the way it is. I, I struggled for the first year wondering if I was the right person to be doing this book because I wasn't born in this country and because my view of history within myself is a really kind of intimate thing. Like I, I think about it through the aspect of how the diaspora, how the Black diaspora shares history. And so it's a series of stories. It's not a series of dates. It is the emotional impact of what these events and who these pioneers are and what they accomplish, how it affects our lives. And so that was the starting point for me. And I wondered if maybe I was too other in my perception to make this book into something that Americans could see and appreciate. That I was actually thinking about the emotional legacy of history as much as a tangible one, and and I know that that's because I'm from Grenada, and I uh, you know our history is really intimate. You know, we even within our history, our West Indian history, we speak about history very emotionally. It's mm-hmm. a series of stories. It's 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 the intimacy and the anecdotes. You know, it's how we share recipes. It's all oral. We have an oral tradition that you go everywhere and Black people are the same. We, we tell stories in the same way to each other. And so it took me about a year working through my feelings about it and, and really kind of stepping into, yes, I am the right person to do this. And how I'm thinking about history is how I'm going to approach working on this book.
0: Okay, I've got three follow-up questions to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't think of which one I want to go first. Um, I, I guess I'll go with, with the first thought, because you, you do talk about also in this introduction um, about being terrified through the process mm-hmm. week 1 mm-hmm. week 2 week 3 is, is that mm-hmm. why is because you were concerned about what people would say about you not being american and 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 telling american history or what what terrified you
1: what terrified me is feeling like i was representing a pretty huge thing that it was it was seminal for me personally that i was attempting to kind of wade into this landscape because black history as a construct as a like how we talk about it in America is it's still really fraught it's still kind of relegated it's either anecdotal or it's in history books or it's children's books or it's 28 sometimes 29 days a month and that's kind of it depending on and unless you you come from a family that indoctrinates a sense of your history in an everyday way it's abstract to a lot of people and so i wanted to honor the fact that I was wading into some intense waters, you know, and I started thinking about making a book. The original project was just self-induced curiosity. And so I, I painted a different Black History Pioneer every day for a month just to see if I could. And then along the way, realized that it was a much bigger undertaking. And several friends were like, you're doing this. You are uniquely qualified to, to do this. And you, not, you should do this, but you are doing it in a couple of cases. And, um, and actually, the first person who told me that I was going to do this was an African woman. She was like, mm. you have a responsibility to do this because you, you know the mechanics of how to make this book. And so it was a, a dear friend, a Kenyan woman, who was, was like, get to work. <laughs> she, and that scared me even more because I knew she was right. And so that meant that I had to roll up my sleeves, I had to make myself a student again, I had to make myself vulnerable, I had to start from scratch, I had to start researching, I had to start writing, making lists, asking for help, really bringing in the community because I knew that this was a too great an undertaking for me to just do it by myself.
0: We're going to segue into the process uh, of the book and the impetus for it in just a second. But the other thing that made me, uh, the other thing that I've been sort of wrestling with, both in what I read and what you just said, is that feeling that as, as a Black immigrant, that maybe then you weren't the person to tell this this story about Black history, mm-hmm. which you say you've always seen as American history,
1: mm-hmm.
0: has me sitting with how fractured the diaspora is. Yes. And we talk about it as one Thing, <laughs> yes, um, but we are so fractured, right? Yes, and, and yes. Def- yeah.
1: We are a fractured people. Yeah, and you know that that statement produces a lot of responses from a lot of people. But for me, I've always seen it as an origin point. You know, I, I, I don't. It doesn't make me sad to think that. It just makes me aware that that's what it is, and and there's so much beauty in that you know, in what we are all facing. And there's a reconvergence that I'm witnessing right now where, you know, there used to be more of a distinction between Black Americans and South Americans and, you know, Africans and Caribbean people. And I'm seeing that there's more of an awareness of, oh, we're all kind of in this swill right now and we actually need to be working together more, more and more and more and more and more. And so I, I'm seeing a shift away from it just being splintered and sad. I'm seeing it being splintered and agency and urgency around uh, us collaborating with each other.
0: Mm. You're listening to and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with George McCallman about his book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. I deduce because you mentioned that it was a leap year, that it was in February, Black History mm-hmm. Month. Am I right that mm-hmm. you did these 29 drawings? Yes. Um, of, of, in
1: 2016.
0: Okay, of Black pioneers. So that was the impetus for the book. Yes. Um, say more about the the end of the 29 days, and I'm imagining a spiritual moment where you realized it had to be a bigger thing.
1: I mean, try... Six years of spiritual moments, you know, it was just one catharsis after another, one setback after another, one victory after another, one ask after another. You know, I shouldered a lot of the responsibility myself for the first few years and then started pulling more help in, more perspectives, more just really kind of recognizing that this was a community effort and that I needed more people involved behind the scenes just to make sure that I wasn't just honoring the pioneers of American history, but that, you know, the thing I was terrified of initially was just getting it wrong. You know, American society assigns Black people, individual Black people, as representatives of every other Black person alive. Yeah, buddy. And that's that's the nonsense and the, the scourge of... American racism, like it really, it it indicts all of us individually. And you could be minding your business; it doesn't matter how fancy you look. It doesn't. It doesn't matter in this country. You know, you can be Ryan Coogler uh, directing one of the best received and most uh, successful movies of the year, but then you can be labeled. A thief in Bank of America at your own bank and pulled over, you know, Steven Spielberg doesn't have that experience. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 doesn't know, he doesn't know what that feels like, but Barry Jenkins knows what that feels like. Right. You know? And, and so there, there's a huge, there's a, 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 an ocean of difference between what Black people know in ourselves and what everybody else understands. And so, you know, I felt the weight of that. Like, I was like, if I'm waiting into Black history, there are a lot of people who, if I get it wrong, will let me know and will not let me forget that Mm I failed. And so I was in, you know, embodying all of that, even before I knew I was working on a book. (laughs) I was, Mm. I was like, Ooh, I can't mess this up.
0: I just have to mention quickly. I did go see Wakanda Forever, and it, it was not lost on me that the commercial before the film uh, had Ryan Coogler doing a commercial for Chase.
1: Bank. Oh, he really? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I love it. He has a new bank. Yeah,
0: yeah, he has a new <laughs> bank in is all, all over bank. the world. <laughs> that's amazing.
1: Good. That's a, that's was... a power. That's a power move right there. Right,
0: right. That's a I power, it was power quite move. Brilliant. That
1: is fantastic. <laughs> Um, well,
0: I imagine what what will happen, or, or I mean, what I hope happens, is is not that anybody tells you you got it wrong, because I I, I don't know that with works of art, um, which is, is, I mean, yes, a history book and it's a work of art, um, or in the uplifting of our folks that we can get it wrong, we can do mm-hmm. it through the lens with which we see the world, right? Right. Um, I imagine Black folks will have critique, and there will yes. be conversation, and it will generate. Um, I think, critical conversations. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that that's what you're experiencing.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I am. But the other thing that I knew, I mean, after I got the book deal, and I got the book deal before the 1619 Project, there, there are a lot of books that are now in the lexicon that weren't there when I was starting. So I, I really felt isolated. I felt not alone in a, in a sad way, but just kind of like I had no model. Mm-hmm. of what I wanted this to be. And and I didn't want to get it wrong in a cultural way because I knew that this book was a pioneer, that it it, it in and of itself, it was revolutionary that I had given myself permission to do this and that I knew how to do it. And so I was going to, you know, I came into an understanding that, yes, how I view history is the kind of North Star of this book. But mm-hmm. it took me a while to get there, and I gave myself the room to kind of fumble about in my brain a little bit in my heart and I just just wanting to make sure that I had a, a kind of ironclad way of showing myself that I knew what to do to honor. I just wanted to make sure I was honoring all of the people who were in this book in a way that they could see themselves and mm-hmm. recognize what I was saying and And representing to you know to the world about them,
0: you definitely handle the material with reverence. I mean, you you can feel that as you flip through the pages and um, 140 (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, folks, along with with as I've already mentioned, beautiful illustration. you, you talk about, or, you know, the title of the book, Iconic and Unseen. And in mm-hmm. terms of iconic, I mean, you've got folks like Richard Pryor, uh, Ruby D and Ossie Davis, James Baldwin, Ida B. Wells, et cetera. How did you choose the iconic?
1: You know, I had a response. And this is, this is kitchen table talk here. You know, it was like, other Black people will understand. I had a response to Black History Month. I was tired of the same 10 people being trotted out, yeah. and, and I was just kind of like, no, I, I don't want, and the introduction is also a visual telling of that, because I have people at the beginning of the book who are not in the book, you know, um, Martin Luther King is not in the book, yeah. Malcolm X is not in the book, Harriet Tubman is not in the book, Prince is not in the book, I represent them, but I'm basically saying this is not fantasy football, our history is not a series of quotes to make everybody feel good about their laziness. You know, I, it, 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 is, it is about agency and urgency. And for me, I was interested in stories. You know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is not in the book because of his accomplishments, his vast accomplishments as a sports figure. He's in the book because he's a fantastic writer and scholar. <laughs> and I wanted to show that the well-roundedness and the polymaths, of the world, that we have, have commanded many disciplines, and often in one lifetime. And I wanted to show that this is a really smart, erudite, he's not just a warrior on the courts, but he's a warrior with his words. And there were a lot of people I was looking for basically what they influenced and what they represented and what they changed. And so even if it was someone that I knew already, I, it, it was discovering another aspect of their life that just made me really excited and curious about them.
0: I um, also have a question about the politic of the book. Were you driven by a particular politic? And I ask that because right next to um, Kareem's profile, you've got uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, um, mm-hmm. who, of course, is the first Black woman vice president, is indeed now um, considered iconic mm-hmm. here in the Bay. <laughs> right. For folks like me, we right. remember her as someone who was a staunch supporter of one of the most brutal police departments exactly. in the country, yes. never prosecuted a cop, treated yep. our families like crap. She's right. in the book, as are the three women that founded Black Lives Matter.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So was exactly. there a politic?
0: Talk to me about this.
1: Well, what I wanted to represent was the complexity And the, you know, Ben Carson is also in the book, Yeah, you know, and there are are a lot of people I don't personally agree with, or I I know their full public history. And what I wanted to represent was the diaspora is also Mm -hmm. not particularly aligned politically, that there are lots of folks who represent who have, at various times worked against us um, as an organism, as a community, as a culture but that they were also part of a change. You know, what Ben Carson is in the book because I wanted to show that that same representation, that that like the tokens being representative of us. Like I grew up in the 80s, I'm 51 years old. And so I am, I'm old enough to have seen Ben Carson being deified and then him coming out as a Republican and then being a chicken head for the last <laughs> few years as, as, a, as a lackey, you know? And, and his accomplishments are still his accomplishments. And how do we as a culture, you know, it's like we're seeing it with Cosby, we're seeing it with Kanye, we're seeing it with our figures when they start showing different facets of themselves. Michael Jackson, we, we, we have to make, we have to decide how, how we are, what our relationship to them is, yeah. and I wanted to represent that in the book I didn't want to make it so airtight that it's it's an inaccurate rendering of our culture at the same time
0: that, that resparked something that I thought about when you were talking about um, America labeling all black folks by the actions or behavior of one folk. The other thing that America does is they choose our representatives for
1: us. Absolutely. Right?
0: Who's the safest version of whatever pl- is black and political and trending in this
1: moment? Yes, 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 yes. And this book is also a refutation of that. You know, mm. there's that's where the unseen comes in, which uh, is where I,
0: I'm going next.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I basically wanted most people, unless you are a historian. You are not going to know most of the people in this book and i wanted to make it accessible in a way i didn't want anyone to feel bad and i wanted to also honor which the the introduction shows is that i myself didn't know a lot of the people in this book and that that is i decided that was fine it gave me an in it gave me a a kind of starting point to dig deeper and to educate myself and re-educate myself about what i knew i didn't go to an hbcu and so i also had to acknowledge that i was at a deficit myself like i've learned the last six years i have relearned a lot of what i didn't know there was a lot of stuff i knew but i i had to make it okay for me to not flagellate myself because i didn't know who Hannah Crafts was the first time, but now, hopefully, I've created uh, a way in for you and you and you to know who Hannah Crafts is, and that's that to me is what it's about.
0: I think yes, if you're, uh, if you're, unless you're a historian, or and and this is where I'm thinking that maybe some of the 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 more interesting conversations about the work you've produced will happen, or if you're. A revolutionary or a student of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I get my guess, and uh, is that my daughter was sat down with this book, and she will know most of the mm-hmm. folks in this book no, because of the way we right. he did her education. Do you know what I mean? Yes. yes. Um, and and and,
1: uh, and there are black families all over the world where people will open up the book, and they will know most of yeah. the people in there. You know, the essays are representative of yes. that. You know, yes. the Emil Wilbekin, his family took him out <laughs> on the holiday that is now Martin Luther King years before it was a national holiday. Right. Like he grew up being educated about his culture. And so he, he has a lived in sense of American black accomplishments. Whereas, you know, the person living two doors down from him might not, but right. but the revolutionaries yeah. and the families that are steeped in, in our culture will have already Done that work within themselves,
0: which leads me to my question about how did you define unseen?
1: Well, it started personally. You know the the original the original number of names I had on this list of who are, who of the subjects that I wanted to have in the book were close to five hundred, and I got them from all different sources. Friends recommended. I started doing my own research online in libraries. And I, I was like, oh, there's a whole encyclopedia of this. And how do I reduce it um, for the purpose of this book? And there are actually 145 subjects in the book. And and I really trusted my own instincts around it. I was looking for stories. I was looking for avatars of accomplishment. Uh, I wanted to make sure that there were people who lived all over the country. It wasn't just relegated to a north and a south and a you know, East and a West. I just wanted to make sure that for all over the country, generational, and and I wanted it most importantly to cover the entire length of American history.
0: I'm gonna push just a little bit here,
1: yeah, uh, and please. it's mostly out
0: of curiosity.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. So
0: you've got um, Emery Douglas, who's one of my favorite humans on the mm-hmm. planet. Like every time mm-hmm. I see dude, I just like melt into a puddle. <laughs> um, he's such a beautiful spirit. So you've got him, and yeah. you've got uh, Kathleen Cleaver. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess that led me to think about, um, some of those folks like Kathleen Cleaver, I would consider, I would consider her scene. Um, as opposed to like the rank and file of the Black Panther Party, right? Who were Black women and who were really the engine. Um, Or, um, for instance, the the three women who founded Black Lives Matter versus the folks who were in the streets long before Black Lives Matter whose struggle and sacrifice made it possible for that organization to ever exist. Exactly. How did you balance those decisions?
1: Um, Well, you know, there were lots of movements that I selected avatars of. You know, I, mm, I yeah, made a decision it like that, it, that. that it wasn't going to be, I, it could have been the Black Panther Party and saying the history. Um, but you you will see it, as you spend more time with the book, my personal bias comes out. It's just, and, I, and it is something that I am really clear and declarative of. There are more women in this book than men.
0: Yes, I noticed
1: that. <laughs> um, there are more artists in the book than someone else might have selected.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I was suggestive of movements and my, my basically personal interest in documenting the women who were at the forefront of these movements. It's, it's Marcus Garvey's wife I profiled, not Marcus Garvey. Yeah. Because I think that Amy Ashwood Garvey is more interesting than Marcus Garvey which is almost sacrilege to say to some people, but, but that misses the point, which is that the women at the forefront of, of our culture are the people who were more interesting. <laughs> they were the ones doing the work. They were the ones who were actually providing continuity, and they were more consistent forces uh, within these movements than the men often. And so it's there without it being there. And I wanted to focus on the human beings, the individual human beings that were representative. And, and I, there are many times that I was like, oh, I should just shift this to focus more on the kind of grassroots movements beyond the movements or in a lot of cases in front of the movements. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to really kind of keep it focused on the human, human and humanity. Like mm-hmm. this book that, as I thought of it, was the start of, you know, I, ha- I have several books in this. This is not the only book that I'm going to be doing on this subject. And so I made a decision, which I knew would be subject to that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted it to be more personal. And I knew that a few of my choices would be controversial yeah. to a lot of people. And I was fine wearing that. I was like, I, if you're irritated by who's in the book... Then I'm the person you should be irritated. With. <laughs> I stand by. I stand by every choice in in there, and it's and it's. I'm open to a conversation, and I'm not defensive about any any of anyone's. You know, someone's irritated by a choice, but I was like, no, I feel I feel strong, and I feel good about why that person is in is in this book.
0: I mean, honestly, it wouldn't have mattered who you put in here. Somebody's gonna. Uh, have, have something to, totally. to, to say about it. I mean, that's just, that's, totally. that's just a human experience. And I'll just reiterate, right? I hope those somethings are inquiries and curiosity and that it generates conversations among so um, yeah. our people.
1: Um,
0: yes. Y'all, you're listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with George McCallum about his book, Illustrated Black History, honoring the iconic and the unseen. You you went there. I want to spend a little bit more time there. There are five essays um, as mm-hmm. part of this collection that that cover a wide range of things. Um, you mentioned uh, Emil Wilbekin. I, I loved his story because it reminded me of how I raised my daughter um, yes. and how the folks in my circle have raised their children, right? Talking about yes. how parents instill... Black history that is not taught in our schools and into our mm-hmm. children and, and the resilience mm-hmm. that creates in them. And um, one of my favorite humans, um, uh, Marvin K. White, right? On ritual yes. and libation. And,
1: How and can he like, be one of your favorite people? He's one of my favorite Oh my gosh. Guys. I love he's, that human. We might have to fight for him <laughs> because he's just the most precious and special, special, special human being. Oh my God.
0: I mean, listening to him, Speak is a religious experience every single day. It is. Time, it is like time. being
1: around him is a religious experience. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and then you've got black journalist Patrice Peck, and I, mm. I, I mean, it's just They're lovely. And I just I guess I had a question about A, how did you see, how did you desire for the essays to complement the, you know, the shorter profiles and illustrations um, that you chose, and how did you choose these amazing humans? And then the third part of the question is: Did you direct them in what they wrote,
1: mm-hmm. or what was that process? Yeah, um, really great questions. The origin point of the essays came as a result of solving another tonal issue in the book. I originally had the book organized by categories of industry and I ran into a problem almost immediately. Um, I was communicating with several African-American studies professors around the country, and I happened to be speaking with Josh Myers, who is at Howard University. And I asked for his perspective as I did, like I spent the first year basically just researching, just having my list and vetting it. Um, And he reflected a flaw in my thinking, which is that several most of the people in this book are polymaths and they cross different categories. And how was I deciding who was going to be in what category? And the engineering of the book just fell apart. And it was one of, I mean, and this is pretty customary behind the scenes when you're, you think up until a certain point and then it doesn't make sense anymore. And so you have to kind of start the process again. And I realized that I, I wanted to alphabetize, kind of remove the whole idea of categories. And and just in general, like we defy categorization as a community. And so I was like, well, of course, of course that doesn't work. And and so I decided to reframe it uh, alphabetical. And so that meant that I didn't want the monotony of it being alphabetical, giving people an excuse to not move through the whole thing. And so I wanted to insert several breaks that would allow me as a designer of the book to design the pages differently so that there was a, a kind of break and a launching point also. And so that meant that the book would not be in my entirely in my perspective. And I knew that that also was our community, that I, I needed to get other people's perspectives in here. And so it was just a series of conversations and, you know, I I think through these things in this way. And so when I landed on that, I just reached out to the people whose words I really admire. You know, Mm -hmm. the people who are thinkers as well as writers. There are lots of very talented writers that I wouldn't have asked to do this. I wanted to get perspective. And so, you know, I asked Bryant, I asked Marvin, I asked Emile... Um, you know, some people I knew already, some people I didn't, um, and I just reached out and people just said yes. And I, I, I didn't direct. I asked them to be as personal as possible. And the, the starting point, I said, what is black history to you? I want to hear how you found your way into it. Was Mm. it your family? Was it school? Was it not school? You know, what, what is what is your entry point into this construct outside of what we know and feel, you know, as, as black people in everyday, like, can you articulate how you found your way into this? And what people wrote just, I, I cried with every single essay I received. And then that's how I knew beautiful. this meaning. They're beautiful and yeah. they're beautifully written.
0: They are. And they're a lovely uh, addition to the book. Um, We're going to wrap up here in a minute, but I want to personally thank you for the inclusion of Black Cowboys.
1: Yeah. And folks that you profile. my
0: listeners will laugh because I talk about how much I love Black Cowboys on the show often, and anytime I can cover them, I do. Um, That made me excited. Yeah. Um, and I also love that even for someone like me, who is a student of movement, I do not know everybody in here. And the way that you do the table of contents, right, which has um, <laughs> an illustration and their name, I really did have a good time. Like, oh, I don't know that person. And then I could just jump yeah. to that page, right, yes. and, and learn yes. something. And that, that's quite a, a fun experience of the book. George McCallman, how did writing this book, illustrating this book, change you? And how do you hope it changes the world?
1: I am a different person having moved myself through this experience. I absolutely am. I think it has made me a more curious person to be quite honest with you, uh, which I thought I was a curious person before, but I learned that there are layers of engagement as, as human beings that we, we all, you know, we meet each other and we, we have our conversations and you can decide in the moment whether you're gonna dig deeper with the person you're talking to or you're going to wrap it up and keep it rolling. Mm-hmm. And regarding the book itself, I would like people to see themselves in the efforts and accomplishments and setbacks and sacrifices of our Black Titans. Um, more of their stories need to be told. And I want, um, I want this book to be in every home in America because I want everyone to be curious about who these people are. It is that important. Mm,
0: That is a beautiful note to end on. You all are listening to Law & Disorder. We've been in conversation with George McCallman about his book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. George McCallman is an artist, graphic designer, and creative director. His studio, McCallman Co., creates long-lasting brands for clients across arts, lifestyle, food, and mobile media. He's a senior lecturer in graphic design at California College of the Arts and is the author and illustrator of the San Francisco Chronicles Monthly Observed column. He lives in San Francisco. George, thank you so much for the work, for this conversation, and- and for joining us today thank you so much
1: kat you are fantastic thank you
0: you've been listening to law and disorder a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system agitate for resistance and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive that's it for this episode family you can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes law and disorder is produced at kpfa that's listener supported radio on the pacific network the show is produced by jesse strauss and hosted by me kat brooks our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawandisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area.